Welcome to Biblical Brainstorm, the Seth and Chandler podcast. Uh, it's coming to you live at Jacksonville and Dallas. We have a special episode today, and we are very much looking forward to it. We have a special guest on tonight, Michael Jones. Before we uh, formally introduce him, I'm Seth. This is Chandler. How you doing, Chandler? I'm good, man. You know, just living life, summer, summer life. Argentina won, so I got to rep them today. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the biggest soccer fan, so I can't really attest to the hype, but I know that the hype is there. <laughs> yeah, not in America, but in other countries. Right, anyway, yeah. so our guest today, Inspiring Philosophy slash Michael Jones. Um, what do you prefer? Inspiring Philosophy, Michael Jones? What, what can you just call me Michael. Michael. Mike, whatever is fine. All right, sounds good. Um, but yeah, we're going to be covering the moral argument for God's existence, even more specifically, Michael's version of it um we were going to cover the teleological argument but we're going to move that to another week um we really wanted to get uh him on to to cover this topic and ethics and everything um so uh, we'll let him do that and if you guys do have any questions you can uh leave it to the end we might interact with them a little bit uh, but yeah we're gonna, we're gonna jump in uh this uh, basically his ministry uh michael's he uh he has a youtube of over two hundred thousand subscribers he uh he has a website as well I guess you can you can describe it as a nonprofit organization or apologetics ministry per se. Um, yeah, it's a it's a five hundred one c three, so it's a okay, awesome. And uh, yeah, he's he's been all over the place. He's done debates with atheists. He's uh, defended um, arguments for God's existence, anywhere from philosophy, from history, um, for a variety of topics. You know, you, if you go to his YouTube or his Facebook page or website, you'll see just uh, you know a variety of topics on Christian apologetics. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to have you on here. Yeah. Um, so I know yeah. part of the, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing with this podcast, you know, is, you know, we talk about second Timothy, we talk about first Peter having a defense for your faith, you know, knowing why you believe what you believe. So having, you know, having you on Michael, someone who really studies, studies this kind of stuff with, uh, you know, very academic and it's very, very researched, you know, it's awesome. It fits right in with the podcast. So very, we're really happy to have you on. Yep. And, um, also, um, he has a recent video out on why God uh, allowed slavery in the Old Testament. So if you guys want to check that out, it also has to do with ethics as well. So be sure to check his page out and, and everything. Um, but let's start um, with uh, what is the moral argument? So I guess if you, you know, Michael, you can take it away. Um, the traditional forms of the argument, what is the ar moral argument for God's existence? So the traditional form of the argument uh, is uh, basically what you get from like William Lane Craig's version, mm -hmm. which is uh, uh, if moral values and duties do not exist, or if God does not exist and moral values and duties do not exist, mm -hmm. premise two, moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. And so it's a very, very simple form of the argument. Uh, and basically it's just trying to point out that, uh, that God would be the best way to ground moral values and duties. Sure. My my approach to the moral argument is a little different. I prefer to focus mostly on moral ontology itself. Mm -hmm. And then once we understand what moral values and duties are, we understand there's a personal aspect to this ontology. And there just basically means God exists. It just it, There's nothing more we need to try to ground. Once mm -hmm. we understand what moral value du duties are, we understand there's a personal aspect there. Then we know that God exists. Kind of, that kind of mentality. Gotcha. Yeah, I think I have it just for people to follow along as well, if you wanted to see. So here's the traditional form of the argument is if God does not exist, right, if there is no God, then objective moral values and duties don't exist. And 
objective would be in a sense of like it's it's re it's required right it's it's just there it's not arbitrary it's not up to just people deciding what they feel is right or wrong mm -hmm. um and from there it goes to objective moral values and duties do exist which i guess would be the you know another controversial premise there that you'd have to defend that they <laughs> in fact do exist uh and the conclusion therefore is that god exists uh and so why why do you think michael that one uh, what are the benefits of this argument? Why do you think it's it's good or, or it's sound in some ways? And then what what do you think needs improvement on it? Like why? Uh, well, why, why well it's it simple. You can basically memorize it and it's like don't get fitted on a fortune cookie. Uh, the only problem is is that it leaves a lot of people kind of scratching their heads, going like, well, how does all this work to tie together? Uh, mm -hmm. What is why can't you have objective moral values and duties and not like why can't those exist and God still not exist? Uh, mm -hmm. Like why? Why is it so? Like we're, it seems like there's a lot of jumps in this the logic of this. Now, now Craig in his books he does go into more details explaining this, uh, and I think one of the deficiencies also is it it comes across it doesn't necessarily but it comes across as more like a top down approach. Like we have God, okay. God dictates more values and duties. That's where they come from. Mm -hmm. I prefer more of a bottom up approach. Mm -hmm. uh, let's start with what we know about objective moral values and duties. And when we study the actual ontology of them, we're going to find out they have very personal aspects to them. Uh, and that, therefore, would imply there's a uh, some sort of uh, rational source and a rational personal source behind mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that would see what we would call God. So I prefer not to try to just start with God and get moral values and duties out of God. Mm -hmm. I prefer let's start with objective moral values and duties. And let's see what we know about them, if we can get God from that. So bottom-up approach kind of attitude. Gotcha. So I guess what it sounds like is that these this argument, one, it's kind of vague, right? There's a lot that needs to still be explained, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then also that it's almost presuppo presuppositionalist in a way. It's like you're starting that like with already a belief in God in some way. Uh, it can come across that way, but it doesn't necessarily. It really depends on how the speaker explains it. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. And I don't think yeah. Craig himself, who's a big proponent of it, is presuppositionalist. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. All right. Well, um, basically, from there, why do you think uh, why do you think it it fails? Like, what what needs to be improved upon it, as far as your version? Like, well, I, I prefer there to your version. Well, I, I prefer to start with like the the as I started as I was saying earlier, starting with like the bottom up approach. So what do we know about objective moral values and duties if they exist? Well, first we need to obviously argue that moral realism is true, that there is objective moral values and duties. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of atheists that do think that, but then they say, well, that doesn't mean there's a God there. So what I try to do is I try to talk about the different aspects of it. So take moral obligations. This comes from Peter S. Williams, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. I can make an obligation for you to like, for example, maybe watch my house. Like uh, maybe I had to go to town, I had broken windows. I can't lock the door. I obligate you to watch my house. So obligations can exist between rational agents. Mm -hmm. If we have objective obligations that we have to do, like things like do not rape, do not do not torture, mm -hmm. uh, those it makes it doesn't make sense that they just sort of exist somehow in an ether. Obligations mm -hmm. only exist between rational agents. So if there's objective obligations for us to have that we have to follow, that implies there's some sort of a necessary being that these objective obligations are grounded in. Uh, because obligations just don't exist like you know, logical descriptions or empirical facts. They mm -hmm. exist only exist between agents. So if there are objective obligations that humans have to follow, that implies there is some sort of objective rational source that 
gives us these obligations. Makes sense. Uh, another aspect is, of course, you could do the same thing with like prescriptions. If we're prescribed to live a good life, if we're prescribed to not rape or murder, you, prescriptions themselves cannot, they don't exist like as like descriptions. So let's, let's do a description, a prescription distinction. Mm -hmm. I could describe the mathematics and the physics, the chemistry all taking place if someone was murdering another person. I can describe it logically. I can describe mm -hmm. it uh, chemically, I guess, all, biologically. All chemically, yeah. anyway. Nothing in there is, in a, is a prescription. There's no prescription do not murder mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. actual act. You don't get that from the actual description of the empirical facts happening there. So there's a difference between descriptions and prescriptions. Prescriptions, yet again, only exist between agents. They cannot be found in nature. They cannot be found in logic uh, mm -hmm. itself. They can only come from an actual mind. So I can prescribe for you to do something like watch my child for me or mm -hmm. watch my house. If there are objective prescriptions, same thing. The, this implies there is an objective agent. So again, going back to my bottom-up approach, if we just study the very ontology of moral values and duties, if they're objective, it implies there's a personal, rational mm -hmm. source that they would mm -hmm. come from. Makes sense. So going yeah. back to the the idea of it being a rational enterprise, right? So um, breaking it down for people. So like, for instance, rocks. Rocks are just inanimate objects. They don't have any consciousness, and therefore they you can't ascribe to it any type of morality, right? Like a rock can't do anything good or bad. Uh, mm -hmm. But people, we could say, uh, you know, we are conscious. Uh, we can do good or bad things. Uh, so that, I guess, breaking it down for people to where the distinction between, like you said, logic or just objects versus morality is necessarily attached to um, a rational being, right? A conscious being. And so I guess what would be the proof to that if somebody was, okay, well, why is morality necessarily attached to, you know, rationality or, or consciousness? Well, like I said, it's not, it's a rational enterprise. It's not an empirical enterprise. It's not something you can find in nature. Uh, we cannot study biology or chemistry and get ethics. We cannot study even psychology necessarily and get ethics. We can only study how people act and what they behave. But mm. from that, we cannot get the prescription that this behavior is wrong or that behavior is right. That's something extra added on. It's something that is not found in the physical descriptions itself. Mm. It's only something that would exist within or between conscious agents. So I can prescribe something to you that makes sense to us. It's a, it fits with our intuitions, but you cannot get a prescription just from like studying my brain chemistry or my psychology. It only has mm -hmm. to come from the conscious agent. So it's a rational enterprise. It's not, it's not an empirical enterprise. So that distinction is important to tell people. Mm -hmm. We understand morality is a rational enterprise. It's not, and the only people who would disagree would be non-cognitivists, but that's another, that's a topic for another time. <laughs> uh, but it's, we would say it's something we, we rationally do between conscious agents. So it's not something you get from the physical description. So it's not an empirical enterprise. And from that, we then go through the next steps to study more of the ontology, like I've been talking about. Okay. So what would you say, I guess, from that to somebody that's, I guess an atheist that says, well, it could just be grounded in some kind of pragmatism where it is empirical in some way. You see that um, you look at the world and it's like, well, this would obviously benefit you if you did this. This wouldn't benefit you if you did that. And that's mm -hmm. how we kind of come up with morality over time, over a long, you know, an evolutionary period or whatever. And so why does it have to be, a, you know, why is it detached from just simple empiricism? 
you know? Right. Well, that's actually an argument that Ruth Schaefer Lando puts out. Now, he's a moral realist. He believes moral values and duties are objective. Uh, but he is also an atheist, so he doesn't think they would get to God. So he he says, like, not all normative laws require a lawmaker. Like, you know, for instance, the laws of logic, rationality, and normity. Uh, you could look at something like, look at, like, a, a pragmatic prescription. Uh, I could, you could, we could say it's good to eat healthy or it's good to exercise. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody wasn't, we wouldn't say they're necessarily violating a moral law or, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're not going to, we're not going to throw them in jail. They're not breaking anything that's, you know, causing any sort of problem. They don't necessarily have to. Well, some people, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> some people, sure. So like, why can't moral values and duties be like the other normative odds, like pragmatic odds? Mm -hmm. So uh, Peter S. Williams sort of responds to this. And, and you know, the problem is, is with saying that moral odds are the same as other normative odds in, in their basic status. Um, uh, they're not really the same thing. Pragmatic odds, pragmatic, pragmatic odds, like being healthy, exercising, these kind of things. And for the audience, odds being like what you ought to do, like, yeah. you know. Things you ought, this is what normative studies yeah. are about, things you ought to do. Uh, uh, they don't really, you can ground them in just pragmatic logical descriptions so we could say it's good to be wise now we wouldn't mm -hmm. say it's immoral to be wise it's good to be wise because it's just mm -hmm. pragmatic you can you mm -hmm. could actually ground that in a logical description because we could say well we, we have studied things in, in you know, the physical universe and we have found that you advance more in certain ways if you're wise you've advanced more if you're healthy these kind of things you can ground those in actual logical descriptions about what would be the pragmatic most optimal way to live in physical reality moral arts don't carry that and so uh let me give you an actual example from history there was a guy i think his name was dirk uppums i forget his last name but he was in prison uh and he was um he managed to escape he was a religious prisoner he managed to escape i think he was a catholic in like a protestant prison uh and he was running across ice and a guard was chasing him the guard mm -hmm. fell through the ice and he turned back and went to save the guard the guard then arrested him and he was executed a few days later now, he did everything that would be not, he did not do anything pragmatic for his own survival. He did the exact opposite. He went back and he violated, you know, pragmatic uh, reasoning there because you know, his own life was going to be taken by the guard and he would be executed. Mm -hmm. But we would say he still did the moral thing because mm -hmm. he saved someone's life. So moral values and duties uh, cannot be grounded the same way pragmatic thoughts can be. They're a little different. Uh, again, they, they, there's no, there, you can think of so many examples where you could do the moral thing and it would be very, it would not be very pragmatic. Uh, mm -hmm. like for example, like if you're in living in Nazi Germany and you're hiding Jews, that's not really pragmatic because if you get caught, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but we would say it is the right thing to do regardless. My life should I'm gonna put my life at risk because it's, there's something beyond just being really pragmatic. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, Peter S. Williams, uh, when he responds to the Ruth Schaefer Orlando, he writes this, he, uh, when Ruth Schaefer Lando writes, if you have the excellent evidence for one claim and this entails the second claim, then you should believe the second claim. Think of like, if you want to advance in life, you should be wise. He equivocates between moral and pragmatic senses of the word should. Logical logic has nothing to say about what objectively ought to be the case, morally speaking. Logic can tell us that if we want to accept whatever conclusion is valid, validly deductible from certain premises, then you then such and such is the conclusion that we should accept. But this is a pragmatic ought. Logic can't tell us that we have a categorical moral obligation to be reasonable or to value truth over falsehood. 
So that's the distinction to draw in there. Yeah, I guess there is a separation because pragmatism is, I guess, connected necessarily, if you could say that, to self-preservation. Because if it's not pragmatic to you, then who is it really pragmatic to? It's just, I guess, the greater good of society. But then you've already jumped ship from pragmatism into and a, like a higher can be kind of subjective as well. I mean, you could say like, you know, it'd be pragmatic in this situation. But what if you're part of that heaven's gate cult and you want to commit suicide? The mm -hmm. most pragmatic thing to do would be to commit suicide because you actually think you're going to end up on Hale Bob's Comet or something or the spaceship behind it, whatever they believe. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. it depends on what you're being pragmatic, what you're pragmat, what you, how you're directing your pragmatism. What is your goal? So it can be, it can change based on the goal. You have to recognize that. Well, we would say certain moral values and duties do not going to change. Uh, there's always going to be some sort of goal. If you're a virtue ethicist, it's about living a good life, living a flourishing life. If you're like a Kantian, you it's holding certain moral uh, objective values or uh, du duties that are universal and can never be broken kind of thing. Hmm. And I know with um, kind of like what you were uh, sort of like what you're talking about, uh, I was reading about evolutionary naturalists and kind of how with the um, sort of our morals, our ethics and everything has kind of come through selection where you've just, it's mm -hmm. kind of a thing we've learned over time. And that kind of was like we were talking about pragmatism, where it's like more of a survival thing. But then when you get into the moral part, like the guy going back to save the guard, you know, that kind of goes against his own survival. So that would kind of point to a little bit of a theistic approach, too, of there being something causing you to do that. Yeah. And atheists like to try to say that more of what moral values and duties just reduce to our evolutionary history. Like it's how we uh, we think this way because that's how we evolved. And they're, they're equating between the epistemic and the ontological status of moral values and duties how we come to learn about something. Hmm. It is not the same as what it is. For example, we, our species slowly evolved to learn mathematics and science. That doesn't mean science is just a social construct. That doesn't mean hmm. mathematics is just something a social construct. If we evolve to learn objective moral values and duties, there's a distinction there. So hmm. just because we may have evolved to learn them uh, through like an evolutionary history, come to realize what they are, that doesn't mean that's all they are. And so a lot hmm. of atheists who make that argument are really uh, making a categorical error there. Mm -hmm. and so I know kind of like for us you know we've um, just kind of on a personal level like we you know we're Christian so we're going to try you know we want to use you know these arguments to try to point to God but at the same time we want to be fair and kind of do like you were talking about with the ground up approach so you know just kind of looking at the um, like with this case the evolutionary thing and like what you're talking about you know it's just there's still something missing that you know, for us, we would say, you know, that's God that points theism and everything. But, you know, there's still there's still a there's, gap. Yeah. Yeah. There's still it's still hard to explain for some people. But, you know, for us, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, God would be that missing part. But so how do you, you feel know, that yeah. gap, I guess, from yeah. you, you made yeah, a distinction between question. pragmatism and true morals. Right. In a way. And so how do you get from that to, OK, God as that okay, source? Yeah. Well, I mean, once if someone already believes there's objective moral values and duties, they're distinct from pragmatic sense of the word ought, uh, then it's just a question of studying that moral ontology of these objective moral values and duties. Uh, and it's, it's quite simple from there. I mean, once you understand there are objective obligations, you understand those don't just come from an ether, those obligations only exist between agents. If there's objective prescriptions, those can exist between agents. If there's a moral ideal, like this uh, a moral ideal, Again, you're not going to picture some sort of just you know, laws floating in ether. You're going to picture an actual agent who is the moral mm -hmm. ideal. Mm -hmm. 
So just when we start to study the very basics of the ontology of moral values and duties, we understand it's a rational enterprise. It's not something that exists in nature. Okay, so it's got to have some sort of rational aspect of it. Again, things like obligations, prescriptions, ideals, these are personal aspects. Okay, so whatever objective moral values and duties, not only is it a rational enterprise, it has a personal aspect to it. So moral values and duties are personal, rational ontology, some sort of source. That just sounds like God. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, so God just simply sort of comes out of the very logic of describing mm -hmm. objective moral values and duties. It's not so much we have to sort of, we got these moral values and duties and we got to somehow get them in God. That's not mm -hmm. really what we're doing. It's just study the moral values and duties and we're going to realize that is God. And you know, mm -hmm. the New Testament sort of says the same thing. It says God is love. It doesn't mm -hmm. say love is grounded in God. God is love. Mm -hmm. Likewise, in, in um, uh, philosophy of religion, we would say God is the good. The good is God. When we discovered that water was H2O, we didn't say that you know, water is sort of grounded in H2O. These two terms mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. Likewise, God is the good and the good is God. Objective moral values and duties are God and God is the objective moral values and duties. The way it works. So I guess why would, if you were talking to somebody like a Platonist or something, why couldn't it just be in the ether? Why, why do we have to posit a single source to these type of things, like a, a single agent? Why couldn't it be a non-personal uh, thing like, you know, I guess Platonists would say like things like justice concepts, right. And that, are, that are somewhat in the ether, um, uh, that we should follow because they are there and they're existent and it's still an ought, but it's not grounded in a personal single agent. Right. And I, I would say then you're just positing multiple personal sources because no, the, what, no, no matter how you look at it, objective moral values and duties are going to have that personal rational aspect whether they're just these concepts floating in the platonic realm or whatever, they're still going to have that personal aspect to them. And mm -hmm. if a Platonist wants to say, well, yeah, they, they are that personal aspect, but they're not really personal. They're just these concepts. It just becomes ad hoc. Why not mm -hmm. just go with what seems to be intuitively the case? One of the things William Lane Craig says is what theists should be trying to do is to raise the intellectual price tag of atheism. We can't disprove what they're saying, but we're just going to show how much intuition you have to deny, uh, how much, uh, odd beliefs you have to accept. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to something like the moral argument, sure, you can believe there are these concepts, these objective moral values and duties that maybe exist in platonic space or whatnot that are not personal, but it just seems kind of a, it mm -hmm. seems like it goes against your intuition, seems sort of ad hoc. Why not just mm -hmm. say what they actually seem to be? The ontology describes their, describes himself, the ontology describes itself as a personal rational source. Why divorce what it actually is showing us? Mm -hmm. And I know it seems really difficult, you know, to try to think that there's just, you know, um, you know, there's right and wrong just kind of exists without somebody having to put that in motion. Like it's it's not really a thing where there are these constants that even God has to um, abide by. You know, it just I think it to me it points to, you know, God is the one that implemented them and created us to think that way. And it's not necessarily that there's just these other ideas kind of just floating around in the ether, like you were saying. And well, I mean, so it's, I mean, I would say like, I'm more of a virtue ethicist. So I would say that God is like the moral idea. He is the, the, the Fromanoth or what is the term? I think it's Fromanoth. He is the virtuous agent that we are supposed to mimic. Uh, we can't okay. be and on virtue ethics. This is a little bit slightly different topic, but on virtue ethics, you can't be moral or virtuous unless you mit follow learn from a virtuous agent, learn what the actual moral mm -hmm. idea is, and then mimic that. So 
on virtue ethics, it actually lines quite well because God, you know, the actual moral idea, if moral values and duties are objective, we would have to mimic who God is. And that would also very much point to an agent behind moral values and duties who we are supposed to follow and mimic. So the moral mm -hmm. argument, I think, is actually strengthens us. It strengthens even more if virtue ethics is true, but it's not necessary, of course. Makes sense. Yeah. I like this comment here. It says, IP, your beard is evidence that God exists. So. It's, getting so long. <laughs> I actually just shaved, but I had a bigger beard and I just, you know, I had to shave it. Yeah, I'm trying to grow out as much as I can right now. But yeah. I'm like, I look back in like my family history and I'm like the first male to have a beard in my family since like the 1800s, that's I think. Funny. Oh, like wow. I saw photos from like, you know, like 100 years ago, like never once clean shaven. And my, my dad's clean shaven, my grandpa's clean shaven. So, See, my, my, my family can grow a beard. It's just I can only grow it so much to my wife's tolerability. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my no, wife would be angry if I shaved my beard. My really? wife would be oh, angry if I shaved. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she, she got, she'd get angry if I did. That's she doesn't like, not like, and I know Seth's rocking it. So, yeah, I'm trying so to work on mine. Yeah, not, my dad's got an impressive beard, but mine's uh, a no, little bit there. lacking compared to his. But <laughs> all right, well, well, shifting gears a little bit. Um, so what? What if somebody were to say, I guess, like a naturalist or somebody like Richard Dawkins, right? They say, well, there is no objective morality. There is mm -hmm. no actual ethics. These are just human constructs that you know. It's almost like playing pretend. Like we pretend to know as a society that things are bad and things are good uh just just because it's part of our human nature it's part of our survival etc like there actually is nothing truly wrong or truly good um you know objective in an objective sense it's just all based on society and i've actually heard people say this say this very thing of oh morals is just based on society like if you lived in another society that's mm -hmm. what's moral etc um but i guess why why would that fail and why does that not touch the the truth of objective morals so skeptics hate when i say this but the burden is on them to show that the mm. burden is on them to show that morality is subjective why because it's so intuitively obvious that it is not anyone who found out that there was female mutilation right now in the middle east and parts of africa gets angry and doesn't go well that's just their culture no we <laughs> say that's objectively wrong that needs mm. to stop i don't care what they think i don't mm. care that they think it's okay the hmm. fact that they say that, the fact that they say, I don't care what they think, they're acknowledging that morality is not just contingent upon what humans decide or what works for them. Hmm. There's something objective beyond what people think or set that we have to conform to. And the fact that they want to adjust the way people are living implies morality is objective. So hmm. people like David Brink, Richard Boyd, Ruth Schaefer Lando, I mean, these are not theists. I, I, don't, I don't think Richard Boyd is or David Brink is. I'm pretty sure they're atheists, but... Bruce uh, Fernando definitely is. And he says, the burden is on you guys to show this is subjective because it's intuitively obvious that it is objectively the case. And they come up with all sorts of different theories, which are riddled with problems. Uh, but, you know, like... I guess example, like the ice cream theory, like what? how is it different than, oh, it's just distasteful? Like, Well, that's the thing. If, it, if it's all just subjective, it comes from our evolutionary history. Why are taste preferences not objective? Why would we think it's wrong if someone really enjoyed eating something that's not edible? Like there's a lady on some hmm. dude just, just enjoyed eating couch cushions. There's a lady who enjoyed eating toilet paper. <laughs> now, that's not going to help you survive. Mm -hmm. We've evolved to avoid eating things like that. But sometimes people have something wrong in their brain and they want to eat that kind of stuff. And we don't think that's necessarily objectively wrong in a moral sense. We just think it's weird. Uh, yeah. Case preferences are not objective in the same sense moral values and duties are objective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there very much is a distinction here. There's an odd distinction here. So one thing I point out and I point out in my debates is 
moral values and duties manifest in reality in an objective sense, unlike taste preferences, unlike uh, other sorts of preferences that we would have gotten from our evolutionary history. Uh, like we may very much like uh, certain you know, environments because it optimizes our survival. That doesn't mean it's objective to live in them. You can live in harsher environments and no one cares. Certain taste preferences are critical to survival. Mm-hmm. But if someone if someone was eating raw meat and they somehow, you know, they, they've eaten enough that their stomachs became used to it, we don't think they did something wrong, even though we know that's not the optimal diet for humans. Mm-hmm. That's a very bad diet for humans, but that doesn't mean they're doing anything objectively wrong. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like Ruth Schaefer Lindo, David Brink, uh, they, they point out that, you know, uh, Kai Nelson's another atheist uh, who believes in objective moral values and duties, Thomas Nagel. Uh, they, they manifest in reality in a way that is objective. Like, mathematical truths are they're objective regardless if we think two plus two just cannot equal five uh, it's not a social construct it's objective likewise mm-hmm. moral values and duties manifest in this way and they don't manifest in a way that would be similar to taste preferences if they manifested in a way similar to taste preferences then they'd have a point so the burden is on the 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 moral relativists or the non-cognitivists or the error theorists to actually show that their theory is right because intuitively it seems far more likely that they are objective Mm-hmm. So they have to meet that burden. And, and I guess as a counter to that, like, uh, you know, to somebody who posits that as well, to think that you're really comparing something like food to something like slavery or child rape or things that we almost universally agree, like these are mm-hmm. wrong, like these are morally reprehensible things. And you're going yeah. to reduce it to, oh, it's just distasteful to some people, but it's right to others. Yeah. Um, you know, if and it's no subjective. One, and if you get, if you, you know, this is why you, you'll see oftentimes moral realists throw these examples out to the subjectivists or the relativists, and you watch them wiggle. Like, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't like child rape. I think it's bad, but mm-hmm. I can't really say it's objectively wrong. And it, it, mm-hmm. it feels so intuitive. Like it's, it's intuitively, mm-hmm. it just sort of grabs us and says, no, that's not the way it is. Because yeah. moral values and duties manifest in an objective sense. That's yeah. how they manifest in reality. You are somehow taking this intuition that we all have, we all share, and trying to morph it into something that it just simply is not. The burden is on you to show that the way you're morphing it is actually the way it is. It's not on us to show that it is the way it mm-hmm. just appears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Like when you try to throw it back on them, then all of a sudden they <laughs> they have that moment where it's like, well, I think, uh, I think I might be wrong on that one. Because it's just it's like, like you're saying, it's an intuitive thing. Like everyone... It just there's a, a core set of values that everyone just seems that crosses all cultures and everything that everyone just knows. You know, things like you said, the child rape, the mutilation, like all that. They just we just know that's wrong. Like let me, let me give an analogy here to help. So like think of things something like A theory and B time. Time mm-hmm. manifests to us according to A theory. We all feel like A theory is the way time is. We're moving from past, present to future. The past is gone. The future is it does not exist yet. That's how it manifests. Now, proponents of A theory say, well, this is the way intuitively feels. Now, B theorists would say, well, we have a good mathematical and physical evidence that B theory of time is actually true. So they have met that burden. They have said, look, we have actually provided evidence that maybe our intuitions are wrong here. Mm -hmm. When it comes to morality, the subjectivist or the relativist has not met the burden the way the B theorist has. They have not given good evidence that indicates that maybe our intuitions here are wrong. They just Mm -hmm. keep asserting they are and say that the burden is on us. No. The burden is on you to show our intuitions are wrong here. And you've not met it like a B theorist has. So you've got to do more. And, you know, our uh, philosophers like Ruscha Ferlando, Kai Nelson, Thomas Nagel have argued that they just simply haven't. It's not the same.
Mm-hmm. And I think that's what they've tried to do as well. When, mostly when I've seen subjectivists, or they, they try to shift the burden of proof. They're like, well, show me why morals are objective. You know? Yeah. Um, it's and, like, but well, they, they are. It's like, you, that's the way they manifest. End of story. Your turn. <laughs> yeah. When they can't, you know, answer the same challenge, I guess. Mm-hmm. And if you don't just have that, um, I guess in our case, God is that main figure. You just really morals and ethics just kind of go in circles and there's just really no way to kind of concrete anything. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make sense. And so you'll get some people trying to ground it the same way you ground pragmatic odds and just uh, uh, optimal ways to live within physical reality. It just It's pragmatically the way we should live. And that just simply doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you'll get ethical naturalists like people like Kevin DeLapp who try to uh, reduce morality to some sort of natural thing. And it just gets very ad hoc. Like, it's just mm-hmm. like, maybe it's just some sort of undiscovered law we haven't found yet or undiscovered substance. I mean, it just doesn't mm-hmm. really make sense. Yeah. And yeah. I guess the response to that too, and which would be the same to the, like the Platonist is, well, even if those things existed, right. And just like an ether, they wouldn't have any causal like properties or they wouldn't have any odd, like why ought you to obey these entities that actually aren't, personal agents at all they don't you know they can't hold anything accountable they're just there they just exist but it's like there there's a gap between something that just exists in the ether that's non-conscious non uh personal to us who are personal conscious agents that are doing things you know moral or immoral Mm -hmm. so i guess that's that's a good that's a good point you made there it's that even if like let's say moral realism is true and there are objective moral values and duties and God doesn't exist, why should we obey them? Well, mm-hmm. if there's actually a God who governs and controls things and has meaning and purpose to our life, that makes a little more sense as to why we ought to follow them. Mm-hmm. There is actually like a personal agent watching and mm-hmm. uh, dictating the way certain things ought to be. You ought to live this way. You ought to be virtuous this way kind of attitude. Uh, if there is no agent behind it, where's the enforcement, I guess you could say. You yeah, mm-hmm. or judgment or... Yeah. Where's yeah. the judgment, the force, and where's the justice who's governing, making mm-hmm. sure, you know, that everything will be set right, you know, imbuing things with triumph and whatnot. It's, there's, there's a problem there. And so I, this is why when people, when people say, I like, if asked me, like, you know, when it comes to something like idealism versus materialism, is there a form of idealism that is non-theistic? And I'm like, I don't know how that would make sense. If every, if on idealism, all is mine, I don't know how that is not theistic. So yeah. I don't understand these mm-hmm. atheistic idealists. It doesn't make sense to me. Likewise, mm-hmm. when it comes to objective moral values and duties, mm-hmm. I don't understand how you can be a moral realist and not be a theist. It just seems to make it seems yeah. to point in that direction. Yeah. I understand they're out there. I just think it just is illogical. Yeah, and, and I was gonna say, and if there are any atheists watching, or like maybe put in the comments, like why do you believe? Like if you believe that something is really right or wrong, but yeah, you don't believe in God. Why? Mm-hmm. I mean that there is a gap there between. Why do you believe something is truly objectively right or wrong if you're a moral realist? Um, but then you don't believe in God. I'll say, you know, my God is the good. That's mm-hmm. what I mean. That's technically what the Bible says God is love. So my God is the good. My God is objective moral values and duties because God is the good. The good is God. So I worship, I pray, I, 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 I've given mm-hmm. my life to the good. That's, mm-hmm. that's uh, you know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, God, he, God is truth, God is love. So, you know, I don't know, but I, I understand I'm, that's not some sort of new age saying. That's just recognizing what the good is. It's personal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's something I just never understood. And I, I've, I've read, like I've read Kai Nelson, Ruchet Berlin Doe, Thomas Nagel. I just, I just don't get it. Like, mm-hmm. 
how how do they not see the theistic application there, the theistic implications mm-hmm. there? Mm-hmm. And so it's just it's just a conundrum for me. And it's like what we talked about when we were starting the series um, in the William Craig's Natural Theology book. He was pointing out that a lot of philosophers and a lot of people in the academic community are becoming theists because they're you know slowly realizing that there has to be some kind of entity, some kind of person there, you know, governing and, you know, making, you know, kind of the rules, so to speak. But it's just to say that there's nothing there, you know, holding us accountable, you know, showing us what's right and wrong. That's, that's just really hard to perpetuate, like you were saying. (laughs) I mean, some will say that if you're, if you if your normative theory is virtue ethics, you don't have to worry about God because on virtue ethics, it's just living a good life. The goal Mm -hmm. is to live a good, flourishing human life, to become Mm -hmm. virtuous. You don't need a God dictating moral laws. Mm. Problem with that is that on virtue ethics also, you just can't do ethics from the armchair. You have to go out and learn from a virtuous agent. Mm. And that implies there is some sort of moral ideal out there that uh, is the virtuous way to live. Mm. So and it's like, who says that, that you're right, that you're virtuous that's an agent, you know, that's an agent. If, if there's a moral ideal of a way for an agent to live, the actual ideal is going to be an agent itself. So mm. if virtue ethics is true and moral realism is true, you still get to God. There, there is no, mm. it's, it's hard for me to see in any way around that. Yeah. So, I, so I guess if moral realism and kind of assumes, you know, a theistic worldview, uh, then let's, let's talk about moral realism. Why is moral realism, I guess, explain it to like a lay person. What is moral realism and then why is it true? So moral realism is a theory of meta-ethics which is like, what is the nature of ethics? Is it subjective? Is it relative to the culture? Is it relative to the individual? Um, if it is objective, what is it? So meta-ethics, that's what it studies. In meta-ethics, I would be a moral realist, a non-natural moral realist. So I would say that mor- morality is real in the sense that it is objective. It's not something contingent on culture. Uh, it's not something contingent on the individual or the speaker. It's something that is objective beyond what you and me decide. But it's not natural. So I'm not an ethical naturalist, not a natural moral realist. I would say that it is grounded in a non-natural source. So it can't be found in nature, cannot be reduced to anything natural. It's uh, So that's what moral realism is. You're basically, uh, moral values and duties exist in an objective sense, mm-hmm. and they're not grounded in nature. And there's a lot of atheists that are non-natural moral realists. Thomas Nagel, Shay Ferlando. So if you're an ethical naturalist, I guess you could find a way to say it doesn't have to be grounded in God, but I mean, there's just other problems rid- that riddle ethical naturalism in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So that's so that's a whole nother conundrum. Yeah, and so basically, what what would you say to somebody that's like, well, you 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 talk a lot about well, it's just innate, right? Like we just know things that are moral or immoral. But then, how do you explain the differences between cultures? And like so many different people have so many different ideas of morality, yeah. what's right, what's wrong, even in history, right? Like people in, in like 100 years ago thought things that would have been, you know, considered today yeah. right or wrong. Uh, how do so, you explain the diversity within conscious human agents that, you know, it, in morality? One word, tribalism. It's that when you study the different alleged ethical differences between different tribes or different cultures, it kind of reduces to tribalism. They in their tribe, they, they have certain scientific or uh, reasonable or you know, logical facts that they just get wrong. So 
Eskimos do not just abandon their elderly because they think it's good to abandon the elderly. They actually think they have, a, they have an odd view about the afterlife where if you die very, very old, you're going to be that very, very old person in the afterlife. So it's better to die slightly younger so that you can survive in the afterlife. You have to hunt, fish, do all that kind of stuff. So they abandon them earlier on so they can survive. So it's not that they actually have a different ethical view. They just have a different ontological view that makes them employ that ethical standard. And we, I, I would agree if that view of the afterlife was true, maybe we should hack <laughs> off people a little younger. Yeah. So you don't want to be like, you know, for the rest of eternity, you're a 100, 200 year old person. That would, that would kind of suck. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that, that's kind of like the thing. And some tribes in Africa, they don't think deformed baby, it's good to kill deformed babies. They think deformed babies are demons or possessed by demons and they're trying to get rid of the demons. So if you correct the scientific fact, they're not going to do that. Now I said tribalism, a lot of it descends from tribalism, racism. If you think the other tribe is inhuman or less, less human, you're racially superior and therefore they're worthy of death. If you take like, for example, like a Christian worldview, there was other views, but the Christian worldview where everyone is a member of the same tribe. There's neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave, male or female. You're all one in Christ. Okay, well, that gets rid of tribalism. You have to realize all humans are equal before God. There's no God shows no favoritism. That's going to take away a lot of the the inhumane ways you'll treat people because a lot of this, you know, what we see in like Nazi ideology and uh, communist ideology is that these other people are not on the same level as us. They're inferior, so therefore we can do whatever we want to them. Mm-hmm. You correct that ontological view that's just in error, and it's not so, that moral values and duties just align perfectly. So it's not that they have different moral values and duties. It's that they have different scientific or ontological facts that need to be corrected. So we're not, so it, it actually, when you study the cultures, it actually supports moral realism. It doesn't support cultural relativism because it's not like people actually think, oh no, it's actually really good to, you know, murder your elderly or murder infants. We think that's great. No, they actually have scientific facts behind those beliefs causing them. Get rid of those underlying beliefs and the moral values and duties adjust the way they should. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was thinking was like um, they have those different you know belief systems, but they believe they're doing good and yeah. they just kind of intuitively know that you got to do the good thing. So that's kind of it's the motivation behind what they're doing kind of a uh, way of right. going. I mean, you go back to like Spartan <laughs> society, like they um, they oppressed another group in Greece and they they they, they thought they were left. They thought Spartans were like the, the, the you know. The, the, the ubermesh, the ultimate humans. And so anyone beneath <laughs> Spartan, you can do whatever you want to them because they're almost like animals. Mm. Now you think they're, if you think other humans are animals, uh, you can do whatever you want to them. And mm. so that, that's the problem right there. Show that all humans are equal, uh, show that all humans are a part of the same tribe. And a lot of the moral values and duties will just, they'll, they'll, they'll flow naturally. You don't have, mm. so you just got to correct the scientific facts, not the, the moral facts. Mm. Mm. Well, we have an objection to the Eskimo comment of, well, that's why Darth Vader Force Ghost changed from an old man to a young Hayden Christensen. <laughs> so what if the, the, the spirit just turned young, you know, when they can get in the Force Ghost? I mean, well, yeah. then, you know, if you could convince the Eskimo of that, then they'd be like, oh, okay, we're not going to abandon our ancestors because we're just going to turn young anyway. So who cares? Yeah, makes sense. So I guess when... You know, we're talking about false beliefs, right? False scientific beliefs. What if a lot of these have are kind of theological in nature? So, what would you say to somebody that says, "Well, see, a lot of these false beliefs and tribalism are associated with religious ideas, and wouldn't it be better just to abandon religion altogether or any theistic uh, outlook on life and see if we just reduced it to, you know, t- take away all these false superstitious beliefs, then we would arrive at better morality, wouldn't we?" There's no evidence of that. 
and that could be studied in psychological studies. There's a study that came out a couple of years ago called Are Atheists Unprejudiced? Uh, and it found that atheists can be very uh, prejudiced against people who don't think like them. Uh, they can even display discriminatory attitudes as well. So just getting rid of religion doesn't get rid of discrimination. Now, maybe you could say that, well, if everyone just became atheists, would be fine. Well, sure, if everyone became Christian, we'd all agree to it. So yeah, sure. Different. I mean, if people, people discriminate for all sorts of reasons, racial, ethical, cultural mm -hmm. reasons. Uh, I just don't like them because they root for the wrong sports team. Uh, that's people, <laughs> humans are very prone to divide themselves in the tribes. There was, mm -hmm. There's a place in, in Tucson, just north of Tucson, called the Biosphere, too. Uh, it's where people lived in the Biosphere for a couple of years. In the biosphere, they divided into tribes. They were they divided the biosphere and part lived on one side, part lived. They they were <laughs> they did nothing to do with religion. It's just that they divided themselves in the tribes because humans mm -hmm. very much need there to be an enemy. It, it's just mm -hmm. almost in our, our evolutionary nature. We always want there to be a bad guy out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if we don't, if there is no bad guy, we we tend to make one. And that's something we need to overcome through you know growing in wisdom and knowledge and understanding you know things. Mm -hmm. that, you know, so that that's just one of the unfortunate things of being human. Right. So I guess this goes back to the idea that are morals um, created or discovered? And so some people would say, well, the society just creates them or people create rules, people create mm -hmm. ethics. But I think there's a distinction between simply creating rules and dis or discovering morality. Like you discover things that are right and wrong. And I guess this would go back to the idea of moral progress, right? If say slavery was around 200 years ago, Right. And so the idea of, well, and even atheists would say this, that today it's better to not have slavery than a society that has slavery. And how do you make mm -hmm. moral progress if, if there's nothing, if you're not going towards, if there, you know, a moral perfection per, per se, or if there's no actual standard of morality, then how can you actually make progress? It would just be all well, I mean, arbitrary. Most moral progress has happened by correcting ontological or scientific facts. You know, we found out that it's wrong to like treat people like slaves because all humans are equal. There's no subhumans. There's no mm. superior race. All mm. oh, you know, we're, we're all equal. That's the way we should live. So, a lot of moral progress results from scientific dis discoveries or discovering more about who we are, discovering more about our nature, discovering more about our place in the universe. These kind of things. Uh, so, and if that we're, moral progress doesn't mean we're inventing ethical facts, even if. Mm. To, even if we are, we're discovering what the ethical truths of reality are. So, you know, that's just part, you know, just because there's moral progress doesn't mean it's subjective. For the same reason, just because there's scientific progress doesn't mean it's subjective. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's a good distinction. And I think I've heard William Lane Craig say this as well, that, you know, just because, you know, like our, our understanding of the scientific world, our, of the material world around us has progressed from ancient times to now. We are coming to a better and better understanding of the world around us. Why mm -hmm. couldn't that be the same for morality? Just because we discover like things that are moral or immoral as a society, um, it would almost be in the same category that, that we're slowly discovering the moral realm per se, right? That we're making yeah. progress and that it's not just arbitrary. So just because ancient societies or other societies um, believe certain different things about morality, that doesn't mean that um, you know, morality itself is created. It could also be discovered and there might be different levels of understanding of morality in the same that people have different and societies have different understanding of the natural world around us. Mm -hmm. Correct. I mean, discovering things like racism is wrong is 
mm-hmm. is, is something that we have discovered. I wouldn't say something we just invented, because if that's the case, you know, like what what was what was the problem with the Nazis? I mean, well, <laughs> they were violating natural. They were violating the moral law mm-hmm. by being extremely racist, genocidal. Uh, this is not something they just invented. It's something. Mm-hmm. It, this is the way it actually is, and that's why they need to be stopped. It'd be mm-hmm. very. I mean, how else are you going to motivate people to actually go fight a war to stop them if it's just all just their taste preferences? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. So I guess too, with you know, you, we have morality. Um, we've got an objective. You know, we've kind of proven that okay, that these things are objective, even if they aren't. You know, even if there's some differences in society, this is just more progress, right? And and honestly, I'm, I'm interested if anybody isn't you know a skeptic here and an atheist that. Um, doesn't believe that there's a God, but does believe in objective moral values, then why? Why is that the case? Why do you believe that rape or slavery or racism is wrong? Uh, but, you know, why? Why is it wrong? Uh, so, you know, will we yeah, possibly take questions? Yeah, different reasons. I mean, I'll just say like this just, uh, I'll get cultural pragmatism, like this is the most optimal culture to have or you're anti-slavery and whatnot. And yeah, that sounds good, but I mean, like, then we could say that like, how far does that go? What are the implications of that? And people take it really kind of far. Like, what if we? What it, is it? Not more optimal, like optimal to like have a society that you know maybe eat always eats healthy, never eats junk food. Should we get rid of junk food? Uh, I mean, because you know, wouldn't it be better to have a more healthier society? Uh, and sometimes you actually see politicians trying to do that kind of thing, where they they become you know almost objectivists and they 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 base their morality on what is the best way to live. And they'll start trying to push these ideas onto people in harmful ways. Like, well, I don't think people should own guns. Therefore, we're going to get rid of the guns because I don't. I think that's the optimal way to live. But, you know, if you have more of a, a moral realist basis uh, and not just you're basing your morality on what is the most pragmatic way to live, you're actually going, I think you're going to create a much better society and not get start pushing draconian measures on people, which can actually backfire in horrible ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So we've talked a lot about objective morality and uh, but there's still a gap between, okay, we have more realism. We're just assuming it's true at this point. We talk a lot about that. And then why theism? And I think it'd be helpful to put it on here for for some people, um, your version of the argument in general. Maybe you can go step by step to just kind of how that leads to to God. Sure. Uh, Let me pull it up here. All right, and this was in your video three years ago. Um, awesome video for those who want to go check it out. Again, inspiring yeah, philosophy. I think the original formulation had like 12 premises, and I shortened it because I thought it might just get too complicated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of others, you know, there's a lot of important information about these steps to show how to get there. So, premise one morality is a rational enterprise, as we talked about. It's not an empirical enterprise, it's something that exists um, mm-hmm. in a you know, rational cognitive thought in, in a conscious mind. Yeah, morality can't be between rocks. So rocks can't yeah. be moral or immoral, so it has to be a rational conscious. Yeah, rational yeah. enterprise. Premise two, moral realism is true. I have a video called Moral Realism Defended where I argue that it is, so I refer to that video for that premise. And we've defended then, the okay, last video already, too, the moral yeah. realism is true. So if it's, a, if, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's a rational enterprise that exists between agents and it's also objective, uh, premise, we also have to talk about, well, could it just be something that we is between us humans? Well... It can't because there's too many problems and moral disagreements among humans uh, for us to assume moral facts and duties are grounded in some sort of human source. We're contingent beings. We've not, we don't fully understand uh, all the ins and outs, I guess you could say. 
Uh, so if it's objective, it cannot just be based on us. Uh, so from that, from the fact that it is rational, it has to be a personal aspect. Uh, from the fact that it's also objective, premise two, and the fact that it can't be grounded in humans, moral values and duties are grounded in a necessary rational source. So that, that just comes from the, the three premises. So again, it's a rational thing. It has to exist in conscious, between conscious agents. It's objective mm -hmm. from premise two. It cannot just be grounded in human sources because of all the problems that human agents would have being the grounding of that thing. So if it's personal, if it's objective, it's gotta be grounded in some sort of necessary rational source. Mm -hmm. It's gotta be, to make it objective, it's gotta be some sort of necessary source so that it doesn't change uh, whim to whim. Uh, again, from premise one shows that it's gotta be a rational source and if it's rational, it's gotta be personal. And this is just what we call God, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, a necessary rational agent, that's God. So conclusion, therefore, God exists. And I, I love premise three because this was actually the question we just asked like maybe 10 minutes ago or so of of like actually responding as an objection to the moral argument is, okay, well, if so many people believe so many different things, then how can you say that there's objective morality? But this is actually a proof for the argument or at least your version of the moral argument that because there's disagreements among humans and, you know, as far as morality it can't be based therefore in a you know in a human right like moral objective morality itself so i, yeah, I love how it just kind of turns it on its head yeah and i i always never understood how that argument was supposed to be for moral relativism i think the more you study moral disagreement the more likely you're going to see moral realism or the more the more likely you study cultural differences and the problems mm -hmm. of different cultures or whatnot it's going to actually be evidence for moral realism uh, because, again, we don't look at other cultures and go, oh, okay, well, they just disagree. They're allowed to torture children. No, we say that's objectively <laughs> wrong. It needs to stop. I don't care what they think. In the moment yeah. you say, I don't care what they think, you acknowledge morality is not grounded in humans, not grounded mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. cultures. It's yeah. beyond what people think, and they have to conform to it. They just can't mm -hmm. make it up based on what they think. Likewise, you cannot make it up based on what you think. you got to conform to what is morally right. Which goes back to the morality is discovered, not created. Ideal. Right. Yeah. And so that therefore goes to premise four, which just follows, you know, necessarily from the first three, um, this source we call God. And so that, I guess that's the question, right? Because there's still, for some people it might still seem like there's a gap, right? Okay. So we're talking about a rational source that exists necessarily. Um, well, my conception or what I grew up thinking about God, that doesn't, you know, conform to any of these ideas like why, why is this god or why do i have maybe a wrong you know perception or mm -hmm. conception of god somebody who's like a skeptic or so like why, why do you call this necessary rational source god and how do we know it's god well i, I mean god is just a title it doesn't sure. you, don't, you don't have to call it god you can call it yahweh call it uh allah call it you know Krishna, krishna whatever you want to call it it's just a title uh, so, I mean, I don't even need that premise for my worldview because it's, it's just the title. You know, I was debating Matt Dillante. He's like, I don't want to use the term God because it creates baggage. And I'm like, okay, but just throwing out the term doesn't mean I'm wrong. <laughs> it just means you don't <laughs> like the term. Uh, my Stay worldview down. is still more accurate given the evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and I guess... Oh, you can go. go. Uh, okay. Well, I, if, um, I just want to... Um, I guess we could save that for the end, but I just had wanted to see kind of uh, personally for you, Michael, did you grow up? Uh, I'm not as 
familiar with your background, but did you grow up as a Christian and you just always knew about God? And so you learned morality and ethics to kind of back that up? Or did you find God through studying morals and ethics? So I would, uh, I grew up in a very fundamentalist Christian church. Like he was young earth creationist, like, you know, mm-hmm. pre-trib rapture kind of stuff. Uh, very, very fundamentalist. It wasn't King James only thank God, but very <laughs> fundamentalist. In that sense. Uh, so I, I, went through a period of part of high school, part of my days in the military where I just didn't believe in Christianity. I eventually mm-hmm. came back, but I, I never was an atheist. Okay. Like I was probably more like an agnostic deist type. Cause I mean, like when it comes to things like just basic understandings of cosmological arguments or basic understandings of moral arguments, it just, it doesn't even, the, even on the layman level, it just doesn't, atheism never made sense to me. It always seemed mm-hmm. more likely there's gotta be some personal source around the universe. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's, Maybe it's like a pantheism. Maybe it's something. But, you know, I never was an atheist. That never made sense mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, too, it's it's important to make the distinction between the argument itself and the person that's making it. Because even uh, if someone were, were to say that, well, you just make an atheistic argument because you're an atheist, or if you just make this argument because you're a Christian or whatever, that wouldn't actually debunk anything that is said in the argument. So mm-hmm. no matter your background or 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 not, the the soundness of the argument is also independent from the one making it, uh, which is important to know. So, like, for somebody listening in that's looking at this argument, um, it just deductively goes through, okay, all, you know, from the these five premises and the conclusion, this source, which we know to be a personal, conscious, necessary, rational source, um, we call that God, and therefore, God exists. And I guess... What would you say would be objections to this argument that you have found and why are they good or why did they fail? I mean, some, some objections, of course, the Ruth Schaefer and Lando's argument I brought up earlier about it just being pragmatic, similar to like pragmatic odds, which we addressed. Uh, some uh, will look at this and they go, well, this is not valid. Uh, well, no, if you understand what each premise means, you understand it, it, can't, it is valid. You just have to let me explain it, um, which happens with a lot with arguments. As I, again, I said, I think my original argument was like 12 premises and I shortened it because I didn't want to overload people too much. So mm-hmm. I just tried mm-hmm. to shorten it down. But if if it's not valid, then I just have to expand it and add a bunch of extra premises I originally had in there and then it's fine. Uh, but I was trying to keep it simple <laughs> Makes uh, sense. for the YouTube video. You know? <laughs> and, so, and so what would you say to somebody then that's like, well, because there's more premises, that makes it harder to defend. Couldn't we just go back to the traditional moral argument where it's three simple premises and we just say, okay, if God doesn't exist, then objective moral values and duties sure. don't exist, therefore God exists. So uh, like, why is this easier to defend or why is it more, I guess, true than, than the traditional? It can, as I said in the beginning, my problem with that, the, the traditional view is it just, it doesn't say enough in its own premises. Okay. So it doesn't say enough people sort of don't understand the logical leaps, how you get to God. And also it tends to argue, most people look at that and they tend to argue from a top down. Like we have God, he gives most moral values and duties. That's it. So it's very easy for a skeptic to look at that and want to bring up things like the youth of our dilemma. Uh, And where does God get moral values and duties from? Does he just arbitrarily set them or does he get them from somewhere else? Mm -hmm. So this one avoids that because you recognize the good is just simply God. Mm -hmm. Moral values and duties are just a personal, rational uh, source, and this personal, rational, necessary source is what we call God. Uh, so y- there's no euthyphro argument you can really put yeah. at this. 
I mean, you could make the attempt, but it's, it's easy to avoid that when you understand mm-hmm. that there's, God is the good and the good Yeah, God. and it doesn't do anything to say why like morals aren't objective for our sense, right? Because it's, you know, you're talking about human agents, right? And it can't be grounded in what we ought to do as humans. You know, it can't be grounded in us. Therefore, it's grounded in a necessary rational source. So it really doesn't touch anything on anything greater than that, right? It's just talking about morality as it pertains to us and it has to be grounded in God. Mm-hmm. So, Correct. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a good um, formulation of that. Let me take that back down. Um, so why, I guess the question from here is, okay, got it. God exists, theism, right? Um, objective moral values and duties have to be grounded in God. I guess why would it, you know, we're kind of going on a trail here. So why would it entail theism rather than deism? And then maybe we can expound any more. How does that get us to maybe the Christian theism or are there other, or does it not? And there's other reasons why we should, it should be better grounded in, morality should be better grounded in the Christian God. I mean, it's hard to really get to the Christian God. You can do it, but you have to understand there's additional steps there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the moral argument gets around theism and gets you to theism because you have a God that actually cares about certain ways we live our lives, certain things we do or whatnot. That's why there are certain objective oughts we have to uh, stick with. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't just make it up as we go. We have we, we have to avoid torture. We cannot rape, these kind of things. So a deistic God is a God who just sort of sets the universe and doesn't care what we do. A mm-hmm. theistic God is one who's more involved in the way we live our lives and uh, a certain meaning we have and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So you get kind of a theistic God from at least the moral argument. Now, you could say that that's compatible with all sorts of different religious views. I'm perfectly fine with that. You could say that perhaps uh, the Christian God uh, is far better at displaying uh, his ethical character than other gods in that he came and he died for us, uh, giving salvation, doing the most ethical and justly thing possible, doing the most loving thing possible. No other God has done something so loving. Mm -hmm. So this God transcends the love and the good of all other uh, supposed gods. Mm-hmm. So you can make that kind of argument, but it's, it's, you can't get from Christianity just from the moral argument. You need additional arguments, obviously. Okay. But like you said, this argument alone gets you to theism and not deism, because mm-hmm. like you said, it, it's hard to imagine deistic God setting kind of these moral, like maybe you can get moral values, but then you don't really get moral duties because mm-hmm. you don't really have reason to do these things mm-hmm. um just you know if there's no actual like accountability it, it wouldn't be a duty in that sense because there's no actual personal interaction there or accountability there it's just like okay you're almost getting back to the platonism ideals like god just set the ideals and then he's just like <laughs> gone took a vacation right um yeah. but like it the, this argument alone still gets you to theism um or i guess in in some sense a monotheism because you have to it has to come from one specific... It's, it's simpler to say it comes from one God, yeah, not a multitude yeah. of different gods. Mm-hmm. So if you get to a theistic God and the God cares about the way we live our lives and certain, and certain values that we ought to hold to, certain duties we ought to perform, you can get to a more religious God from there because the next question is, if God cares about that, he probably has revealed himself to us in a certain way, made himself known so we know a better way to live our lives. So then it just becomes which religion is going to best conform to this. So you can make the case mm. that Christianity best conforms to the way the good is based on this God has gone far beyond 
loving and good ways to show his love and good has done good things that other gods have not other supposed gods have mm. not done coming living a perfect life and dying for us to you know so you can actually maybe in almost almost sort of tentatively get to christianity from there but you have to add additional steps obviously you just can't do it mm. from the moral argument alone Makes sense. And so not, not to go too off topic, but what are some of those maybe other arguments that would say, okay, moral, I guess, in nature or ethical that would point to the, you know, the Christian God? Like, why would the Christian God best fit the description of the ultimate good? Like, why would Christianity be true in a moral sense versus other religions or other theistic, you know, monotheistic religions per se? Like, you know, we, we already have theism we are from this argument alone and then maybe what supporting arguments per se would get us to the christian god or at least what of the bible or what of the christian god reflects that you know of moral god versus others well i would say it's just god's overall quality and that he became human died for us you know, uh, came taught us how to live virtuously uh became the fromenoths uh came down you know no other god has actually got off his throne and come down and lived among us a poor pauper's life, uh, showing us how to live properly and living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, um, and making a, a way through his grace, not through works. Uh, so just the, the very, I would say... The life of Jesus, I guess? The life of Jesus. I would say the very theology or the very ethics of the New Testament best conforms to what the good should be. Just understanding the ethics of the New Testament, who we would expect God to be, you know, his perfect grace, his perfect mercy, this kind of thing. Not expecting us to sort of work our way there, but expecting us, but trying to form a relationship of love with us, not so much a relationship of works. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and I think even Jordan Peterson, who would admit this, and I don't know if he's a Christian or not or a closet Christian, but he would even say that Jesus is kind of the embodiment of, of morality, right? Like a, right. just a, a good perfect ethical life that we look to as, as humans, as humanity. Um, Which is why we should all hold to virtue ethics, because that's exactly what virtue ethics says. We have to find who the ethical, the most ethical agent is and mimic them. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, and That's one thing I always like to bring up too, whether I'm doing a Bible study or um, opening for a service, preaching, teaching, whatever. Um, just look at Christianity versus a lot of the other, you know, gods and belief systems that, you know, they're like you said, they never you know, gave their son to, you know, sacrifice his son for the people. You know, if you look at like Zeus and some of them other, you know, ancient Greek gods, Roman gods, you know, they were pretty selfish gods. <laughs> yeah. So when you look at, you know, God sending Jesus down and willingly living among us and like you said, dying like we should have died, you know, that's a pretty big, um, you know, boat of confidence that, you know, that God actually cares. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, that's so. Again, if, if you if you're convinced by the moral argument, it, then the next question is, okay, it's a theistic God. This God obviously cares about us. How, which then he, if he cares about us, he's probably revealed himself to us. There's religion. Which religion most likely is the way God will reveal himself to us? And you look for the one that's gonna be the most loving. Mm -hmm. And I think Christianity wins hands down. Mm -hmm. uh, gotcha. I think that's just a given. Uh, I don't think you know things like Hinduism, Islam, uh, even you know Talmudic Judaism are have as much of a loving God as what you see in the character of Christ. Hmm. So what would you say to this? Altruism is the life of Christ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I would that. say, I mean, I, I, I'm going to be doing a video on Christian virtue ethics soon. And I'll be arguing that, you know, like 
the reason why Christianity teaches a form of virtue ethics is God didn't just send down laws for us to follow. He sent his son down for us to follow and mimic, do as he does, live as he loves kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So very much that's what the ethics of the New Testament is trying to lay down. It's very much a virtue ethical framework. Yeah. Paul even at times quotes Aristotle, uh, like in Galatians 5, Romans 2. He's quoting Aristotle almost word for word. So he's, he's putting forward his own form of virtue ethics based on Christianity. And I guess if you didn't have that example, then it would be much more difficult to, yeah. I guess, imitate anyway. And so the question from that is then, well, what what did we do with pre-Jesus? Like, okay, like Judaism. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, it was God revealed in such a way that they could have understood God, you know, among the nations as a, as a perfectly, you know, so perfect not being. not necessarily, but they did have the Torah. Now, the Torah mm -hmm. isn't like a law. I just did a video titled the misunderstood mosaic law. And I point mm. out it's more like wisdom literature. It's teaching you how to live a good life, how to live a life that would be honoring to God in that cultural context, in that cultural setting. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have the perfect man to follow. They had a guardian, or they had the Torah to sort of like guard them until mm. the perfect man came, until God mm. knew it was the right time to send his son. So mm. they had this, this, this guard teaching them how to live, how to think ethically. Mm. So actually I would argue that the Old Testament also conforms to the virtue ethical theory of Christianity because the Torah was not setting certain laws they had to follow in all circumstances. It was setting wisdom literature down, ways to live a good life, ways to live a good life in that culture. It wasn't doing ethics like Aristotle was or like Plato was or like the New Testament is per se. It's more about culturally situated wisdom, how to, how to live a life honoring to God in that culture until the fulfillment of the Torah comes. Makes sense. And so I guess changing gears a little bit, uh, you, we have the Bible, right? And you say that the Christian God and Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of morality. But what would you say to a skeptic who says, well, there's so many seemingly immoral things in the Bible and maybe in the Old Testament or just things that they witness in the Bible. And they think, well, how could a God say these things or allow certain things or, or whatnot? And it's just, you know, I know that's a big question. And we won't be able to answer any, you know, of all of those things in this mm -hmm. last few minutes we have. But yeah. I guess what would you say? How does that, um, you know, well, like how does the thing, Christian God conform to that given the Old Testament and, and some if, things? If you study the Canaanite cultures of that time, and you know, you would be disgusted as well. The, the, mm -hmm. the child sacrifice, the temple prostitution. I mean, a lot of times they would attack a city and they take back the women and the children and they'd force the women to be prostitutes in that town. I mean, if a lot of these atheists went back in time with Israel and they saw these Canaanite cultures, they wouldn't be chastising Israel, they'd be picking up swords going, no, we gotta, we gotta stop them over there. <laughs> uh, I'm also not entirely convinced that it was you know, like the utterly wiped out every man, woman, and child. Mm -hmm. studying the cultural language. Yeah, if you study like, you know, Egyptian steles and Mesopotamian accounts as well, they use all of the same hyperbolic language. Like we utterly wiped them all out mm -hmm. and there was no one left alive to breathe. By the way, we brought back these people to be slaves. <laughs> but, you, know, this, you know, read uh, Karen Raina Mittjot's book, um, daily life in ancient Mesopotamia, where she talks about that. Mm -hmm. uh, for the other things like, you know, like God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, I remember like Richard Dawkins noting in a moment of clarity that like if, if Lot and his daughters were the best Sodom could offer, you know, these, this was the best. I mean, I could kind of sympathize with him wanting to destroy this place. I mean, you know, we, we in our culture, we understand that if there's someone like Ted Bundy, we need to stop them and put them to death. Mm -hmm. they, they don't deserve to live based on what they've done. God is omniscient. He knows uh, every heart. He knows when the right time to step in is. And it's very rare. It's not like he's doing this all the time. 
Mm-hmm. You know, these are these are once in the like uh, blue moon, even less mm-hmm. than that at times when God has to enact justice to sort of prevent it from spreading too much. Mm-hmm. So you know you gotta gotta take it into context and whatnot. And there's a lot that could be said. Different passages, I understand, but we don't have time to go into all of them. Yeah, and I guess a part of there's a distinction too, and I think what you even brought up earlier in the episode was the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. And I think the Bible employs a lot of that as well, where they're just describing what happened, uh, and then there's things that God does prescribe, and everything in the Bible is not things that God approved of. Thus, right. I mean, mm-hmm. even with the whole thing with uh, Abraham sending Hagar away, and then God talks to Hagar, it's like, hey, <laughs> it's like uh, you know, even things like that where uh, you would think that you know, people did the wrong thing. And so, well, God did say that it was wrong or like Solomon having multiple wives, but then in Deuteronomy mm-hmm. saying a king should only have one wife and like back mm-hmm. to Genesis, like, yeah. so. Well, I mean, I mean Leviticus eighteen eighteen is uh, specifically teaching against polygamy. It's don't have a, don't have, the, the term is like a sister unto your wife kind of thing. Um, and the actual term in, in Hebrew, more likely for us to just, it's like an idiom to say, don't have another wife, only have one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, Christian theism, like you said, does point to that. And I think a lot of the problems in the, that you would seemingly be in the Bible are, are not actual problems when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the Christian God being the ultimate good. Uh, but I also wanted to point out that whether those accusations are true or not about the Bible, it doesn't actually touch this argument that you presented today. Mm-hmm. So... It, this is an argument completely outside of the Bible and thus consistent with our natural theology series. We're in right now, this is our third episode into that, where even though we're biblical brainstorm and we're, we mostly cover the Bible, that these natural theology arguments, they don't necessarily like, and have the, you know, the Bible in it. It's like, these are outside of the Bible themselves where these things will get you to theism, even without a prior belief in a, you know, in certain theology or God or whatever. So, all right. Seth, did you have anything else, or did you want to go to uh, questions with that? Or, well, um, I guess we can go to questions just because I had some questions, um, not necessarily related to um, you know anything academic, but more just well, I guess academic, but still personal. But um, just in your life, uh, Michael, what kind of led you to want to study morality and ethics, or what was the interest there for you personally to get I mean, you to that point? been a huge interest of mine uh okay. understanding what is because you want to understand how you're supposed to live your life yeah. uh you want to understand why you're living your life a certain way uh and so you know th- those are going to bring up questions like of moral ontology metaethics normative ethics mm-hmm. and so i just think most people are interested in that and i just really wanted to dive deep yeah and that's kind of the same thing um with kind of why i enjoy theology why i'm wanting to get my degree in that it's just i'm, I'm wanting to understand more what i believe so i mean i can you know i can understand that for sure and um not related to uh, the morality thing but you had mentioned you're in the military what branch of military were you in what branch of military was i in i was in the uh, air force for a couple of years and then got out awesome i have a lot of family in the military and so i love uh you know love military always support veterans so i was just curious and just want to say thank you for your service but um mm-hmm. As far as the, um, you know, the academic stuff I had mentioned, we talked earlier, I'm wanting to, you know, considering minoring in philosophy. Um, do you have any, uh, maybe, I guess, advice areas or... of advice or areas of study that I should look at specifically that you enjoyed 
or books um, or anything like that <laughs> to kind of get I ready mean, for that. Philosophy is so wide. It really depends on what your interests are. I mean, okay. A, a lot of, I took a class and it just was clear that my interests were very different from everyone else's in this class. And it was like, gotcha. I don't belong. <laughs> Maybe they're very interested in methodology and epistemology. And I just, that's not me. Okay. I'm more into metaethics, metaphysics. And my, I love studying metaphysics. Okay. So metaphysics, ethics, that kind of stuff, I think is the most interesting. Uh, okay. But I mean, you know, people are going to disagree. I, some people really want to go into things like philosophy of language. I okay. don't really enjoy philosophy of language, so I'm not going to go into <laughs> it. Well, it depends on what you want to go into. I got you. All right. Well, we have about 15 minutes left, uh, so we'll just try to go through some some quick questions here from the stream. Um, I know the first one here, I've started to realize that the ancient perspective on the words theist and atheist are more to do with your identification with without God morally rather than the belief in its existence thoughts. Um, I mean, you yeah, could perhaps that, say that. It really, it, just as long as you understand you're defining God as the good. Uh, so, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's more like you believe in God or don't believe in God. I think that'd be more of a deeper analysis than so I would need to know more about what he means by that. Yeah, I think because we've been throwing those terms around a lot, like atheist and, and theist, and I think in the modern sense, uh, you know, those those connotations hold of like, okay, you don't believe in God or do believe in God, whereas I think what he's getting at is ancient people, it more had to do with morally and, and really worship as well. Um, what God did you worship, whether than just believing that they exist or not? Because, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, I think for modern terminology, I think it's it's helpful to stay with with the times as well so um question here here's a question how do we avoid shooting the arrow and painting the bullseye around it in our apologetical or philosophical arguments i mm. guess maybe even with this one i mean i would say bottom-up approaches uh don't start with god start with you know the ethical start with ethics start start with meta ethics once you argue for moral realism then argue about from the moral ontology of moral realism that it points to a theistic foundation and so you build from a bottom-up approach. So always try to do that. Okay, and I think it clarified too. Meaning we ensure we hit the mark because we are painting the. Uh, yeah, I think I think we understood that. Too. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, let's see. Let's um, the questions here. Um. Oh wait, here we go. Um, if the Exodus never happened historically, can we still keep the faith with the story as a moral of redemption from the sin and liberation from slavery? I think it's a little bit off. Um, I mean, I suppose you could. I mean, you get just treated like one of Jesus's parables, like you get the, the immoral lessons from without it actually being a fact of history. Mm. So I guess you could. I don't really think that's the good proper exegesis of the text. I think they think it actually historically did happen. Mm. And I still, and I think either way too, it doesn't touch the moral argument we presented today or about Jesus himself and what he did as our moral example. Right. Um, so, yeah, I want to make, comment on this one. Both of our hosts <laughs> use extra gel in their hair today. I didn't actually use any gel. My hair is, is just like, I don't know. It's just like this. It's been, it's been standing up ever since I was like, 12. I'm skeptical. <laughs> Seth, I don't know. Maybe yours looks yeah. like it. Yeah. Technically, technically, it wasn't gel; it was mousse. But I mean, I'm trying okay. to grow my hair out long, so I had to put it somewhere, and I didn't feel like wearing a hat today, so I just 
threw it back, but yeah, <laughs> and more right. product in my hair than I usually use. Yeah, <laughs> you shouldn't yeah. slaughter animals for hair quality. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing we did. Maybe another time we'll we'll get to that with animal the morality of animals. But yeah, um, did Moses and Elijah appear literally at the transfiguration of Christ? Wow, these are <laughs> these are questions. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, uh, answered uh, it. All right. <laughs> do you need water baptism? Well, this is just out there. <laughs> I don't think you do, but I mean, you know, people okay. disagree with me on that. All right. Well, is speaking in tongues literal as a gift of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, but I mean, it's a gift. It's not something you just call upon when you want. And so I don't believe a lot of people claiming to speak in tongues actually are. <laughs> All right. And thanks for answering my question. Love, love your work. All right. Um, Cool. Yeah. If there, if you do have any other other questions, we got a few more minutes here. Just feel uh, free to, to put it on here. But um, yeah, just to kind of wrap up and I guess conclude, if if we had to put these, put this hour and a half into kind of a on one minute thirty second version, or maybe a little longer of of what you want people to know or or get from this argument or from morality, uh, what would that be? What what's the like the synopsis version of of uh, what you're saying today i mean the synopsis would be that no matter how you study it if morality is objective if there are moral objective moral values and duties uh, it's going to point to a theistic worldview it's really hard to get around that uh, and all other views uh, that try to get around objective moral values and duties are riddled with problems gotcha yeah so if, you, if you're out there and you're skeptical you say why well, you know i don't believe in god i don't believe in in christianity all that stuff and yet you will simultaneously say things like, well, racism is wrong. Rape is wrong. Uh, we need to, you know, uh, you know, and, and I've seen a lot of, you know, people on my, my newsfeed as well, just funny enough that are more skeptical or atheists. And they'll say things like, oh, the Palestinian conflict, like they, that, you know, one side's wrong or one side is, or, or, you know, Trump is wrong or Biden's wrong. And it's like, well, if, if you don't have, if you don't believe in God, what, how do you justify why things are really right and wrong is it just your preference personally why you you know you just think it's wrong or is it actually wrong in the real world and so do objective moral values exist if they do I, we think it points to god um mm -hmm. and and i think like you presented today i think it, it coherently does you know it mm -hmm. objective or you know, moral realism points to theism and then with su supporting argumentation that really supports uh the, you know it's th shown through Jesus and his life and his example and um, points you to, you know, the Christian God. So. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think that's all. Um, I appreciate you coming on here and, uh, and talking about that. Uh, we really love your work and uh, looking forward to, you know, a lot of the future stuff you have uh, planned as well. Um, but yeah. Just thanks. Uh, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks I appreciate for, it, thanks man. For having me. All right. <laughs> See you guys.